Section 9 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. Volumes 1 and 2 by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 7. 1554 and 1555. Part 1. It is now proper to return to circumstances more closely connected with the situation of Elizabeth at this eventful period of her life. Two or three weeks before her arrival in the Tower, Wyatt, with some of his principal adherents, had been called thither. Towards these unhappy persons, none of those decencies of behaviour were observed which the sex and rank of Elizabeth had commanded from the ministers of her sister's severity and Hollinshed's circumstantial narrative of the circumstances attending their committal may be cited as an instructive example of the fierce and brutal manners of the age. Quote, Sir Philip Denny received them at the bulwark, and as Wyatt passed by he said, Go, traitor, there was never such a traitor in England. To whom Sir Thomas Wyatt turned and said, I am no traitor, I would thou shouldest well know that thou art more traitor than I. It is not the point of an honest man to call me so. And so went forth. When he came to the tower gate, Sir Thomas Bridges, lieutenant, took in through the wicket first Mantell, and said, Ah, thou traitor, what hast thou and thy company wrought? But he, holding down his head, said nothing. Then came Thomas Nevitt, whom Master Chamberlain, gentleman porter of the tower, took in. Then came Alexander Brett, captain of the Whitecoats, whom Sir Thomas Pope took by the bosom, saying, O oh, traitor, how couldst thou find in thy heart to work such a villainy as to take wages, and being trusted over a band of men, to fall to her enemies, returning against her in battle? Brett answered, Yea, I have offended in that case. Then came Thomas Cobham, whom Sir Thomas Poins took in, and said, Alas, Master Cobham, what wind headed you to work such treason? And he answered, O oh, sir, I was seduced. Then came Sir Thomas Wyatt, whom Sir Thomas Bridges took by the collar, and said, O oh, thou villain, how couldst thou find in thy heart to work such detestable treason to the Queen's Majesty, who gave thee thy life and living once already, although thou didst before this time bear arms in the field against her? If it were not, saith he, but that the law must pass upon thee, I would stick thee through with my dagger. To the which Wyatt, holding his arms under his sides, and looking grievously with a grim look upon the lieutenant, said, It is no mastery now, and so passed on." Other circumstances attending the suppression of this rebellion mark with equal force the stern and vindictive spirit of Mary's government, and the remaining barbarity of English customs. The inhabitants of London, being for the most part Protestants and well affected, as the defection of their trained bands had proved, to the cause of Wyatt, it was thought expedient to admonish them of the fruits of rebellion by the gibbeting of about sixty of his followers in the most public parts of the city neither were the bodies suffered to be removed till the public entry of king philip after the royal nuptials on which festal occasion the streets were cleared of these noisome objects which had disgraced them for nearly half a year some hundreds of the meaner rebels to whom the queen was pleased to extend her mercy were ordered to appear before her bound two and two together with halters about their necks and kneeling before her in this guise they received her gracious pardon of all offences but no general amnesty was ever granted that the rash attempt of the duke of suffolk should have been visited upon himself by capital punishment is neither to be wondered at nor censured but it was a foul act of cruelty to make this the pretext for taking away the lives of a youthful pair entirely innocent of this last design and forgiven as it was fondly hoped for the almost involuntary part which they had taken in a former and more criminal enterprise but religious bigotry and political jealousy each perhaps sufficient for the effect combined in this instance to urge on the relentless temper of Mary, 
and the lady jane grey and guildford dudley her husband were ordered to prepare for the execution of the sentence which had remained suspended over them every thinking mind must have been shocked at the vengeance taken on guildford dudley a youth too insignificant it might be thought to call forth the animadversion of the most apprehensive government and guilty of nothing but having accepted in obedience to his father's pleasure the hand of jane grey but the fate of this distinguished lady herself was calculated to awaken stronger feelings the fortitude the piety the genuine humility and contrition evinced by her in the last scene of an unsullied life furnished the best evidence of her guiltlessness even of a wish to resume the sceptre which paternal authority had once forced on her reluctant grasp and few could witness the piteous spectacle of her violent and untimely end without a thrill of indignant horror and secret imprecations against the barbarity of her unnatural kinswoman the earl of devonshire was still detained in the tower on wyatt's information as was pretended and on other indications of guilt all of which were proved in the end equally fallacious and at the time of elizabeth's removal hither this state prison was thronged with captives of minor importance implicated in the designs of wyatt these were assiduously plied on one hand with offers of liberty and reward and subjected on the other to the most rigorous treatment the closest interrogatories and one of them even to the rack in the hope of eliciting from them some evidence which might reconcile to mary's conscience or colour to the nation the death or perpetual imprisonment of a sister whom she feared and hated to have brought her to criminate herself would have been better still and no pains were spared for this purpose a few days after her committal gardiner and other privy councillors came to examine her respecting the conversation which she had held with sir james croft touching her removal to donnington castle she said after some recollection that she had indeed such a place but that she never occupied it in her life and she did not remember that any one had moved her so to do then quote, to enforce the matter end quote, they brought forth sir james croft and gardiner demanded what she had to say to that man she answered that she had little to say to him or to the rest that were in the tower quote, but my lords said she you do examine every mean prisoner of me wherein methinks you do me great injury if they have done evil and offended the queen's majesty let them answer to it accordingly i beseech you my lords join not me in this sort with any of these offenders and concerning my going to donnington castle i do remember that master hobby and mine officers and you sir james croft had such talk but what is that to the purpose my lords but that i may go to mine own houses at all times the earl of arundel kneeling down said quote, your grace saith true and certainly we are very sorry that we have troubled you about so vain matter she then said quote, my lords you do sift me very narrowly but i am well assured you shall not do more to me than god hath appointed and so god forgive you all before their departure sir james croft kneeled down before her declaring that he was sorry to see the day in which he should be brought as a witness against her grace but he added that he had been marvellously tossed and examined touching her grace end quote, and ended by protesting his innocence of the crime laid to his charge wyatt was at length on april eleventh brought to his death when he confounded all the hopes and expectations of elizabeth's enemies by strenuously and publicly asserting her entire innocence of any participation in his designs sir nicholas throgmorton was brought to the bar immediately afterwards his trial at length as it has come down to us in hollingshed's chronicle is one of the most interesting documents of that nature extant he was esteemed quote, a deep conspirator whose post was thought to be at london as a factor to give intelligence as well to them in the west as to wyatt and the rest in kent it was believed that he gave notice to wyatt to come forward with his power and that the londoners would be ready to take his part 
and that he sent a post to Sir Peter Carew also, to advance with as much speed as might be, and to bring his forces with him. He was said, moreover, to be the man that excited the Earl of Devon to go down into the west, and that Sir James Croft and he had many times consulted about the matter." To these political offences Sir Nicholas added religious principles still more heinous in the eyes of Mary. He, with two other gentlemen of his family, had been of the number of those who attended to the stake that noble martyr Anne Askew, burned for heresy in the latter end of Henry's reign, when they were bid to take care of their lives, for they were all marked men. Since the accession of Mary also he had, quote, bemoaned to his friend Sir Edward Warner, late lieutenant of the Tower, his own estate and the tyranny of the times, extending upon diverse honest persons for religion, and wished it were lawful for all of each religion to live safely according to their conscience. For the law ex officio, he said, would be intolerable, and the clergy discipline now might rather be resembled to the Turkish tyranny than the teaching of the Christian religion which words he was not afraid at his trial openly to acknowledge that he had said to the said Warner. The prosecution was conducted with all the iniquity which the corrupt practice of that age admitted. Not only was the prisoner debarred the assistance of counsel on his trial, he was even refused the privilege of calling a single witness in his favour. He defended himself, however, under all these disadvantages, with surprising skill, boldness, and presence of mind and he retorted with becoming spirit the brutal taunts of the crown lawyers and judges who disgraced themselves on the occasion by all the excesses of an unprincipled servility fortunately for throgmorton the additional clauses to the treason laws added under henry the eighth had been abolished under his successor and were not yet re-enacted only the clear and equitable statute of edward the third remained therefore in force and the lawyers were reduced to endeavour at such an explanation of it as should comprehend a kind of constructive treason Quote, if, said they, it be proved that the prisoner was connected with Wyatt, and of his counsel, the overt acts of Wyatt are to be taken as his, and visited accordingly. But besides that no participation with Wyatt after he had taken up arms was proved upon Throgmorton, the jury were moved by his solemn protest against so unwarrantable a principle as that the overt acts of one man might be charged as overt acts upon another. They acquitted him, therefore, with little hesitation, to the inexpressible disappointment and indignation of the Queen and her ministers, who then possessed the power of making their displeasure on such an occasion deeply felt. The jury were immediately committed to custody, and eight of them, who refused to confess themselves in fault, were further imprisoned for several months, and heavily fined. The acquitted person himself, in defiance of all law and justice, was remanded to the Tower, and did not regain his liberty till the commencement of the following year when the intercession of King Philip obtained the liberation of almost all the prisoners there detained. Throgmorton, like all the others called in question for the late insurrections, was closely questioned respecting Elizabeth and the Earl of Devon, quote, and very fain, end quote, we are told, quote, the privy councillors employed in this work would have got out of him something against them, for when at Throgmorton's trial his writing containing his confession was read in open court, he prayed the queen's sergeant that was reading it to read further, that hereafter, said he, whatsoever become of me, my words may not be perverted and abused to the hurt of some others, and especially against the great personages of whom I have been sundry times, as appears by my answers, examined. For I perceive the net was not cast only for little fishes, but for great ones." This generous concern for the safety of Elizabeth in the midst of his own perils appears not to have been lost upon her and under the ensuing reign we shall have the satisfaction of seeing the abilities of Sir Nicholas displayed in other scenes and under happier auspices. All manifestations of popular favour towards those whom the court had prescribed and sought to ruin were at this juncture visited with the extreme of arbitrary severity. 
two merchants of london for words injurious to the queen but principally for having affirmed that wyat at his death had cleared the lady elizabeth and the earl of devonshire were set in the pillory to which their ears were fastened with large nails it was in fact an object of great importance to the catholic party to keep up the opinion so industriously inculcated of the princess being implicated in the late disturbances since it was only on this false pretext that she could be detained close prisoner in the tower while a fatal stroke was aimed against her rights and interests gardiner now chancellor and prime minister the most inveterate of elizabeth's enemies and the most devoted partisan of the spanish interest thinking that all was subdued to the wishes of the court brought before the new parliament a bill for declaring the princess illegitimate and incapable of succeeding it was indignantly rejected however by a great majority but the failure only admonished him to renew the attack in a more indirect and covert manner accordingly the articles of the marriage treaty between mary and the prince of spain artfully drawn with great seeming advantage to england had no sooner received the assent of the two houses than he proposed a law for conferring upon the queen the same power enjoyed by her father that of naming a successor but neither could this be obtained from a house of commons attached for the most part to the protestant cause and the person of the rightful heir and justly apprehensive of the extinction of their few remaining privileges under the yoke of a detested foreign tyrant nobody doubted that it was the purpose of the queen in default of immediate issue of her own to bequeath the crown to her husband whose descent from a daughter of john of gaunt had been already much insisted on by his adherents the bill was therefore thrown out and the alarm excited by its introduction had caused the house to pass several spirited resolutions one of which declared that her majesty should reign as a sole queen without any participation of her authority while the rest guarded in various points against the anticipated encroachments of philip when mary thought good to put a stop to the further discussion of the subject by a prorogation of parliament after these manifold disappointments the court party was compelled to give up with whatever reluctance its deep-laid plots against the unoffending princess her own prudence had protected her life and the independent spirit of a house of commons conscious of speaking the sense of the nation guaranteed her succession one only resource remained to gardiner and his faction they judged that a long-continued absence while it gradually loosened her hold upon the affections of the people would afford many facilities for injuring or supplanting her and it was determined soon to provide for her a kind of honourable banishment the confinement of the princess in the tower had purposely been rendered as irksome and comfortless as possible it was not till after a month's close imprisonment by which her health had suffered severely that she obtained after many difficulties permission to walk in the royal apartments and this under the constant inspection of the constable of the tower and the lord chamberlain with the attendance of three of the queen's women the windows also being shut and she not permitted to look out at them afterward she had liberty to walk in a small garden the gates and doors being carefully closed and the prisoners whose rooms looked into it being at such times closely watched by their keepers to prevent the interchange of any word or sign with the princess even a child of five years old belonging to some inferior officer in the tower who was wont to cheer her by his daily visits and to bring her flowers was suspected of being employed as a messenger between her and the earl of devonshire and notwithstanding the innocent simplicity of his answers to the lord chamberlain by whom he was strictly examined was ordered to visit her no more the next day the child peeped in through a hole of the door as she walked in the garden crying out quote, mistress i can bring you no more flowers for which it seems his father was severely chidden and ordered to keep his boy out of the way from the beginning of her imprisonment orders had been given that the princess should have mass regularly said in her apartment it is probable that elizabeth did not feel any great repugnance to this rite 
however this might be she at least expressed none and by this compliance deprived her sister of all pretext for persecuting her on a religious ground but some of her household were found less submissive on this head and she had the mortification of seeing mrs sands one of her ladies carried forcibly away from her under an accusation of heresy and her place supplied by another all these severities failed however of their intended effect neither sufferings nor menaces could bring the princess to acknowledge herself guilty of offending even in thought against her sovereign and sister and as the dying asseverations of wyatt had fully acquitted her in the eyes of the country it became evident that her detention in the tower could not much longer be persisted in. Yet the habitual jealousy of Mary's government, and the apparent danger of furnishing a head to the Protestants rendered desperate by her cruelties, forbade the entire liberation of the princess, and it was resolved to adopt as a middle course the expedient, sanctioned by many examples in that age, of committing her to the care of certain persons who should be answerable for her safe-keeping, either in their own houses or at some one of the royal seats. Lord Williams of Tem, and Sir Henry Bedingfield, captain of the guard, were accordingly joined in commission for the execution of this delicate and important trust. The unfortunate prisoner conceived neither hope nor comfort from this approaching change in her situation, nor probably was it designed that she should, for intimidation seems still to have formed an essential feature in the policy of her relentless enemies. Sir Henry Bedingfield entered the tower at the head of a hundred of his men, and elizabeth struck with the unexpected sight could not forbear inquiring with dismay whether the lady jane's scaffold were removed on being informed that it was she received some comfort but this was not of long duration for soon a frightful rumour reached her that she was to be carried away by this captain and his soldiers no one knew whither she sent immediately for lord chandos constable of the tower whose humanity and courtesy had led him to soften as much as possible the hardships of her situation though at the hazard of incurring the indignation of the court and closely questioning him he at length plainly told her that there was no help for it orders were given and she must be consigned to beddingfield's care to be carried as he believed to woodstock anxious and alarmed she now asked of her attendants what kind of man this beddingfield was and whether, if the murdering of her were secretly committed to him, his conscience would allow him to see it executed. None about her could give a satisfactory answer, for he was a stranger to them all. But they bade her trust in God that such wickedness should not be perpetrated against her. At length, on May 19th, after a close imprisonment of three months, she was brought out of the tower under the conduct of Beddingfield and his troop, and on the evening of the same day found herself at Richmond Palace, where her sister then kept her court she was still treated in all respects like a captive the manners of beddingfield were harsh and insolent and such terror did she conceive from the appearance around her that sending for her gentleman usher she desired him and the rest of her officers to pray for her quote, for this night said she i think to die the gentleman much affected by her distress encouraged her as well as he was able then going down to lord williams who was walking with beddingfield he called him aside and implored him to tell him sincerely whether any mischief were designed against his mistress that night or no, quote, that he and his men might take such part as God should please to appoint, quote. Quote, for certainly, added this faithful servant, we will rather die than she should secretly and innocently miscarry, quote. Quote, Mary, God forbid, answered Williams, that any such wicked purpose should be wrought, and rather than it should be so, I with my men are ready to die at her feet also, in the midst of her gloomy apprehensions the princess was surprised by an offer from the highest quarter of immediate liberty on condition of her accepting the hand of the duke of savoy in marriage 
oppressed persecuted and a prisoner sequestered from every friend and counsellor guarded day and night by soldiers and in hourly dread of some attempt upon her life it must have been confidently expected that the young princess would embrace as a most joyful and fortunate deliverance this unhoped-for proposal and by few women certainly under all the circumstances would such expectations have been frustrated but the firm mind of elizabeth was not thus to be shaken nor her penetration deceived she saw that it was banishment which was held out to her in the guise of marriage she knew that it was her reversion of an independent english crown which she was required to barter for the matrimonial coronet of a foreign dukedom and she felt the proposal as what in truth it was an injury in disguise fortunately for herself and her country she had the magnanimity to disdain the purchase of present ease and safety at a price so disproportionate and returning to the overture a modest but decided negative she prepared herself to endure with patience and resolution the worst that her enraged and baffled enemies might dare against her no sooner was her refusal of the offered marriage made known than orders were given for her immediate removal into oxfordshire on crossing the river at richmond on this melancholy journey she descried on the other side quote, certain of her poor servants end quote, who had been restrained from giving their attendance during her imprisonment, and were anxiously desirous of seeing her again. Quote, Go to them, said she to one of her men, and say these words from me, tan quam ovis, like a sheep to the slaughter. As she travelled on horseback, the journey occupied four days, and the slowness of her progress gave opportunity for some striking displays of popular feeling. In one place numbers of people were seen standing by the wayside who presented to her various little gifts, for which Bedingfield did not scruple in his anger to call them traitors and rebels. The bells were everywhere rung as she passed through the villages, in token of joy for her liberation. But the people were soon admonished that she was still a prisoner and in disgrace, by the orders of Bedingfield to set the ringers in the stocks. On the third evening she arrived at Ricot, the house of Lord Williams, where its owner, gracefully sinking the character of a watchful superintendent in that of a host who felt himself honoured by her visit, introduced her to a large circle of nobility and gentry whom he had invited to bid her welcome. The severe or suspicious temper of Bedingfield took violent umbrage at the sight of such an assemblage. He caused his soldiers to keep strict watch, insisted that none of the guests should be permitted to pass the night in the house, and asked Lord Williams if he were aware of the consequences of thus entertaining the Queen's prisoner but he made answer that he well knew what he did and that quote, her grace might and should in his house be merry intelligence however had no sooner reached the court of the reception afforded to the princess at Ricot than directions arrived for her immediate removal to woodstock here under the harsher inspection of beddingfield she found herself once more a prisoner no visitant was permitted to approach the doors were closed upon her as in the tower and a military guard again kept watch around the walls both day and night we possess many particulars relative to the captivity of Elizabeth at Woodstock. In some of them we may recognize that spirit of exaggeration which the anxious sympathy excited by her sufferings at the time, and the unbounded adulation paid to her afterwards, were certain to produce. Others bear all the characters of truth and nature. It is certain that her present residence, though less painful and especially less opprobrious than imprisonment in the tower, was yet a state of rigorous constraint and jealous inspection, in which she was haunted with cares and fears which robbed her youth of its bloom and vivacity, and her constitution of its vigour. On June 8th such was the state of her health that two physicians were sent from the court who remained for several days in attendance on her. On their return they performed for their patient the friendly office of making a favourable report of her behaviour, and of the dutiful humility of her sentiments towards her majesty, which was received, we are told, with more complacency by Mary than by her bishops. 
soon after she was advised by some friend to make her peace with the queen by submissions and acknowledgments which with her usual constancy she absolutely refused though apparently the only terms on which she could hope for liberty under such circumstances we may give easy belief to the touching anecdote that quote, she hearing upon a time out of her garden at woodstock a milkmaid singing pleasantly wished herself a milkmaid too saying that her case was better and her life merrier than hers the instances related of the severity and insolence of sir henry beddingfield are to be received with more distrust we are told that observing a chair of state prepared for the princess in an upper chamber at lord william's house he seized upon it for himself and insolently ordered his boots to be pulled off in that apartment yet we learn from the same authority that afterwards at woodstock when she seems to have been in his sole custody elizabeth having called him her jailer on observing him lock the gate of the garden while she was walking in it he fell on his knees and entreated her grace not to give him that name for he was appointed to be one of her officers it has also been asserted that on her accession to the throne she dismissed him from her presence with the speech that she prayed god to forgive him as she did and that when she had a prisoner whom she would have straitly kept and hardly used she would send for him but if she ever used to him words like these it must have been in jest for it is known from the best authority that beddingfield was frequently at the court of elizabeth and that she once visited him on a progress if there is any truth in the stories told of persons of suspicious appearances lurking about the walls of the palace who sought to gain admittance for the purpose of taking away her life the exact vigilance of her keeper by which all access was barred might more deserve her thanks than her reproaches End of section nine.